And welcome to another edition of Amana Podcast. Amana is a collective of people, places, things, and actions that transcend us and exploring people's virtues and looking of what works and how do you stay on track and what takes you off track and how do you get back on. And today it gives me a great pleasure to introduce Greg Slamowitz. We met more recently, Greg, uh, in fact, this year. So you're new to my world, I'm new to your world, but I got to read your book called Flip the Pyramid and was totally, um, this is my, this is where I get to sink my teeth into, you know, company culture and and how you build a company and how do you get a healthy company and, and things of that nature. So I'd love to hear from you, Greg, and first of all, of course, say hello to our listeners. Um, and uh, just how you started off in business and how you started to build your value systems and principles and things of that nature. Well, Mark, great to see you again. And um, thanks for inviting me on to your your, your podcast. Um, I guess uh, the first, how, how did I get um, into uh, business? Well, I like to tell people that I went to law school, not because I wanted to go to law school, but because my mother told me to go to law school. And I, you know, in all fairness, I, I, I did enjoy law school. It really taught me to be um, disciplined uh, in my approach to things and to be a disciplined thinker, but I got out of law school and I started practicing law and it was really the worst experience of my life. And I quickly realized this is not what I wanted to do. And this is what my mother wanted me to do. And, um, you know, for the rest of your life, you you can't do what your mother tells you to do, or, or I think more, more generally, you can't do what somebody else tells you to do. You, you really, you have to kind of look inside yourself and, 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 and be the master of your own destiny and figure out what you want to do. And for me, that really kind of got me into self-actualization, which has become a really big theme and perhaps even a value in my life. And after two years of practicing law, and being very miserable, I called up my mother and I told her I was quitting. And I was working for a big New York City uh, law firm in the World Trade Center. And my mother cried. It was a very difficult conversation. And I told her I was going to go into business. And that's really what I wanted to do. And I felt I, I could, I'd be happy at and do for the rest of my life and be good at it and you know sort of self-actualize um how did you use self-actualization or how did that come about did that come about through not enjoying what you're doing or was there an instance that you went you know there's there's, there's more than meets the eye here and i awareness is a real way in you know, it was it was doing what I didn't want to do. And it just, yeah. you know, practicing law just didn't feel right to me. And, you know, you have all these other voices 
yes. you know, your, your friends and your family, um, and even even to to a certain extent, you know, society. I was you know wearing nice suits, you know, working on the fifty eighth floor for a very prestigious um, firm that was you know hard to get a job with, and so I think to a lot of people. Perhaps I may have looked like I was on the road to success. Mm. But for me, it wasn't the road to success. And it was a big, it was hard to kind of buck that family pressure, to buck that societal pressure and make the decision, you know, I got to do what's right for me. And, um, And this was the beginning, I would say, of a, of a very, for me, interesting road because, you know, it was self-actualization. I got to do what, what I feel good doing, that I'm going to, I feel like I'm making a difference in the world, that I feel good about it. And What's interesting is the first step, it was really kind of about me mm-hmm. and me self-actualizing. Yes. And it kind of fast forward, you know, kind of a, my book and a bigger story was about eight years later, I realized that it really wasn't simply about me self-actualizing. It was about how can I get everybody around me to the same place? Very interesting. And, and so when you made the transition into business, what, what business did you first move into? And then, um, and then you can kind of jump, jump around there. But I think that's a very interesting point and in virtue of, okay, it's one thing to, you know, there's an expression I use, Greg, called we can't go up alone. Yeah. You know, it's, it's um, we, need, we need many. And um, if, you're, if you're in a playing field where, you know, it's just you that has all this awareness. I mean, it either can end up like a dictatorship or uh, people are just, you know, become drones and you're, you're, uh, you're directing. So how did, how did you make that transition and how did you support people and encourage people around you to, to move in that? And, and was there a particular path? That you were you were taking to self-actualize, or was there a particular process that either you created, or was it there was probably multiple involved? It, it was it was one of the most difficult transitions. Hmm. It was one of the most difficult realizations and and transitions in my life, and it took a lot of study. And um, a lot of hard work and 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 years to to execute on that transition. So let me back up. So I you know I I, I read an article about the PO industry, professional employer organization industry, very mundane, um, outsourced HR payroll benefits for small mid sized companies, and I, I quit my law firm job. Um, I had a partner. We had no darn idea what we were doing, and um, and we figured it out. And um, I would say through 
my own self-actualization and brute force and and command and control, we had initial success. Mm-hmm. And we probably got to about 35, 40 employees. And and I I have a modicum of social intelligence. And I kind of felt that the, the people with us in our company, they, they, they weren't enjoying the journey. Yeah, gotcha. And, and that really, really bothered me. And, um, you know, I was with my partner. We were leading and running the firm, you know, through the you know, the brute force of our personalities and making all the decisions and strategically and tactically executing. And, um, you know, the people around us were were just not happy. Mm. And I didn't feel good about that. And I, here I am like Mm self-actualizing and surround and feeling great about what I was doing, but everybody around me was miserable. So that must have been a turning point. What, what, how did you start to turn that ship? Well, I started reading a lot of books. Mm. And I started reading a lot of, a lot of business books. And, um, and I started following this guy, uh, Vern Harnish. And he, he puts on some fabulous... Uh, business conferences and he gets great speakers and um, he's all about culture mm-hmm. and, and what leadership really means and you know I came I, I read all these books and all these all the great business books and I, I came to the conclusion they they almost all say the same thing and um, and and they and what they say is that you know, as, as a leader, you have to come to the genuine realization that it's not about you. It's about everybody else. Yeah. And, and for founding entrepreneurs, that is a very difficult realization intellectually. But more important, it, it, it's often an impossible realization emotionally. Mm. And it's so hard, I found, as to, to actually execute and genuinely live that every day as a founding CEO. Again, it's not about you, the founder. It's not about you, the CEO. It's, it's really kind of old-fashioned servant leadership. It's, yeah. you know, you come to work every day for everybody else around you, and you need to genuinely believe that yourself, and you need everybody around you to genuinely believe that. I mean, it must be genuine. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and that, is, that was my takeaway from all these business books. I really, that was Jim Collins. It's pretty much, you know, and Jim Collins – talks about this quite a bit and 
Um, but it's so hard to to actually execute. Well, we're kind of driven by an, what I call an I society, right? Like me, me, me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the capitalism kind of encourages that and, and, and to shine bright and to be strong no matter what and through, through, through the tough times still look great and resilient. And, and you know, I, if we don't move into that we culture, you know, which, in, you know, in little pockets I'm seeing, I think it's being forced upon us. You know, my little town here called Ojai, um, you know, we had a, we had a fire uh, about three, three, three and a half years ago, uh, probably three years, four years ago. But I watched how this little community came together because we had to. It, it, and it wasn't um, out of, because uh, it was, like I have to, it was because, you know, this is what's needed, you know, and just seeing something like that alone. I'm curious when you started to hire people and started to to move into more of that framework of thinking, what kind of questions would you ask um, potential employees, Greg? Um, that's... <laughs> that. That, that's a, a that's a huge um, huge topic. Um, at, at at this at this point, um, I was pr pretty much getting out of you know day to day tactically you know interviewing people. Mm -hmm. So so structurally, what what we did was. We, we set up a very rigorous um, uh, interviewing process for all, all new hires. And we required that you um, interview with at least three or four people in the department for which you're um, interviewing for. Okay. And, and they can assess your, your technical um, abilities and also your, your, your culture your cultural fit and the evaluation form that they use uh, that they had to fill out uh, would you know ask a series of questions around the, the, the interviewees technical capabilities and also cultural fit and then we had every new employee also interview with at least three and sometimes four people in a different in different departments and their evaluation form was only focused on cultural fit. Hmm. Very curious. Yeah. And so it was very, very important. We became very obsessed with, um, with, with cultural fit. And at this point, I, and we made it very, very clear to everybody that you were expected not only to bring your left side of your brain to work, but your right side. We wanted you. You were going to be asked to um, to be, uh, you know, to to be a problem solver. Yeah. And so we we started spending a lot of time focusing on each and everybody's ability and comfort level with taking responsibility for problem solving tactically on a day to day basis. 
And is, was there structures that you put in place also for for how you created the culture? Um, culture is a very interesting thing to talk about, right? Because in in many regards, it can be, it could appear quite fluid. Yeah. Um, but but I you know I'm in that space as well where I'm supporting companies to how they build out their culture, and to me, it starts with. And coming back to purpose and mission and guiding principles and instilling that in people, but then building objectives to align to it. Yeah. Um, getting those actions done. But the, one of the big ones I found is acknowledgement. Um, acknowledge, absolutely. Acknowledgement is, is, is huge and, and, and celebration. Yes. Um, uh, uh, so called, you know, within your company, public celebration and, and positive shout outs well, what we did I, I you know all the jim collins stuff um you know bhag uh core values the way i look at at core values and and i i talked about core values constantly and told solicited stories for our monthly and quarterly meetings to celebrate people who have been examples of our core values and I kind of look at core values as like the, the the rules of the game this is how we play our game you have to play you have to stay you know on the field and um, you, you must abide by the rules and if anybody violates the core values it's it's a flag on the field mm. and and you have to get to the point where, Anybody and everybody feels comfortable calling somebody out for a core value violation. So as a leader, you can never turn a blind eye to, to core value violations. They, they are sacrosanct. And, um, and I like to say it's a social compact that, we, that, we're, that we're all entering into a social compact. We all need to be aware and cognizant of it. And we're all agreeing with each other that we will always play within our core values. And the way I like to look at it is the only way I could not micromanage you is if we all have the social compact and we all have total comfort that everybody here in this journey, in our company, will be playing every single day within our core values. So that's kind of the first step. You know, I can't give you freedom mm -hmm. unless you look me in the eye and look everybody around you in the eye and agree that, that you're going to come to work every single day and execute within our core values. And, you know, you got your... You know, law firms are the worst. They, you know, they have a, a, a bad behaving corner office partner bringing in a ton of business and everybody turns a blind eye because he or she's bringing in a ton of business. Yeah. You know, you got your star salesperson who's violating your, your core values. You, you, they have to be fired. Mm. Oh, and yeah, on. you know, and, and as a CEO or a leader, when you find out, that there's a core value violation. I think you could assume you're the last person to find out. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
I um I have a methodology, um, and I'm I'll share a little bit about this because I want to get to a point of how you you've you've dealt with this. So one of the methodologies that I picked up along the way, which I adapted from Ken Wilbur, who you may or may not be familiar with, but it's called the four quadrants. And these, you know, there's plenty of models out there, but these four quadrants, quadrant one, you're dealing with the individual's psychology. So I actually go in and do just like a psychologist would I go look at their, I call it their basement, right? Like what's going on with their psychology, their thinking, what 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 are their secrets, what are they holding back, what are they resenting, right? And that's how 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 to deal with that kind of that basement. Then in quadrant two, quadrant two looks at what's your skill set, how are we sharpening your tools, if that's communication, leadership, management, and then whatever your specialty specialty is. Uh, quadrant three looks at culture. So we go in and, you know, hence do an offsite and start to build and strengthen those core values. And quadrant four is like business outcomes, processes, procedures, which is what most leaders deal with. But I, I draw an iceberg over this four quadrants and 95% is really the underbelly of what's going on. So I'm curious, it's one thing to instill core values it's one thing to get agreement and particularly with your with your own in your own process leadership really does demonstrate it. what i notice with leaders if if their basement is coming out which i'm terming basement you know their junkyard if you will because they're under stress or pressure that's you that usually will start to lead the day not the, not their good higher side or good altruistic uh, principles that they wrote up once, you know. So I'm I'm curious how you instilled, um, just not the core values. And I'd love to have an example of one of your core values, um, and and how you went about that. Yeah. So so that 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 I love that framework. Now, and we use something very similar. We used um, out of Chicago, uh, um, Jeff Smart top grading. Seems like a very um, similar approach and it also i wanted to mention this earlier but it you know i'm a big fan of coach k at duke basketball and, and his approach and um it, absolutely so you, you you need to create in my mind um you have to create this structure and it and it's and i call it the constitutional framework you know organizationally and it's not simply your core values it's it's your big hairy audacious goal um your, your brand promise um your annual goals your quarterly goals um uh, on, a, on a company level um on a on a department level and an individual level a lot of metrics kpi i mean that's all part of your culture and 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 what you need within the structure um like coach k um you need to build um a culture of winning and this this program you know like the program coach k runs is is a is a disciplined a meeting rhythm kpis it's a disciplined um structure yes. um that allows you to play to win and so that is culture is often used too loosely. For me, it's it has a very um, defined context. Now you build this very defined 
um, culture and you need to be very focused on the players that you, you recruit and you develop. And yeah, we did, um, I, I can't remember um, who we used, but we used, um, you know, we did, we did character trait um, testing for all new hires and mm-hmm. the, 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 the smart top grading um, interview process. Um, so yeah, you have to then um, make sure you have, um, you recruit and develop um, star athletes. And again, this is where it's not about you. Um, You you know, you can't be the player coach out on the court. You're not on the court. You're not playing the game. And um, so you have to become incredibly focused on, on the, the, the quality of the human capital that, that you have out on, on the court. And, you know, something that I like to, that I, we love to talk about is, well, what do you do when you have a star player that, um, uh, technically incredibly proficient and talented scoring a lot of points, uh, but doesn't play by the rules. Mm. I mean, that you you got to you got to get that guy off the team off the court and off the team. Yes. And and, and I like to compare that with um, you know the player that has your core values, understands your culture. Yes. But is 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 technically um, struggling. So that's a person that might not be in the right seat. Um, So that's a person that organizationally we would spend time with uh, coaching, mentoring, maybe giving him or her additional um, education or technical training. So that's a person that we wouldn't discard right away. We would would work with. But just because he or she has a great um, cultural alignment is is not a free pass they need to be you know a, a b plus a minus player yeah. and you're 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 you know you're you're playing to win and there's no question about that you know and it's like i i can't you know not think of you know ted lasso ted lasso <laughs> you know um, and yeah, so, and yeah. So, so many undertones to it I was, <laughs> as you were talking i was thinking of john wooden as well you know, yeah, UCLA basketball team around cultural fit, but yeah, Ted Lasso is a great example. You know, and and Wooden and and Coach K, and you know, they very you know, well, I'd say Wooden and Coach K more a very organized, you know, structured program to win, and very focused on 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 getting players into the system. And you know, you want to get your B players to B plus, A minus, and you know, you want to move everybody up. Um, uh, uh, technically, um, and that that becomes a, a big part of leadership. And and I tell I tell leadership you have to you have to get out of tactically executing. You you can't have any tactical responsibilities. For me, this is strategy. Yes, yes, absolutely. It, yeah, and um, you know, and and. and and core values, core values is, 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 I have some pretty strong views on core values. And every, every company 
they, they have their words. And, yeah. and honestly, if I go to the company's website and, and, and read their words, they, they really should be pretty much meaningless to me. And, and, and that's because something that you mentioned earlier on, and that is, um, you know, affirmation and celebrating people. And that's why leadership has to be positively celebrating monthly and definitely quarterly individuals that have been a great example of, of your core values. And, and so your core values need to be a series of stories of people, of individuals, and what they've done for clients, what they've done for colleagues. Mm. And so you have to, as a leader, you have to constantly be telling and celebrating the stories behind the words. So the words have context and real deep meaning. Yeah, I use a 360. Uh, you're familiar with 360s, yeah. I imagine, the psychometrics, and it's, a, it's called Team Leadership Circle. And it has both external goals in it, but also the internal stuff of how you're self, self-judging yourself, you know? So there's self-judgment and then there's other people's opinions, but it's an internal one and an external performance one. It's very strong. Ooh, I like that. And, and people really get to see because often acknowledgement is done on the external, right? Like, oh, yeah. you, you kicked a goal, you made a sale, but guess what? You may have been the most disruptive person, you know, causing havoc to get things done. Uh, that that isn't that isn't a cultural fit, although you may be kicking goals, and that that goal kicking became so prevalent, you know, I think through the eighties and just through the American culture of business to win. Um, and now now it's a bigger game, but I don't think many companies know how to go about that. You, you, I agree with you, and that's what I love about this stuff. Yeah. Because if, if you, as a leader in a company, can execute on this stuff, seriously execute on it, you're going to be different. Yes. You're going to become an employer of choice. Word gets out. Yeah. People, want, people want in. Yes. Now, if I could fast forward a little bit, uh, Greg, and, and you can, we we didn't openly discuss this, but we did when we when we first met. Um, at a certain point, you know, you sold the company, correct? Yes. And and found yourself where you told me a couple of good antidotes. I'll let you share what you care to share, but uh, yeah. I would imagine that you're you're. You know, from a self-realization perspective, it's like, where am I now? You know, yeah. it's a new turning point. So I, I you know, I, I had, I founded my company with a, with another partner with nothing, and um, it was a great journey. Sixteen and a half years. I was fifty years old. Um, eight years ago, um, we sold the company um to general atlantic a private equity firm out of greenwich connecticut they owned one of our largest competitors trinet um and uh, i we closed the transaction and i cleaned i cleaned out my desk and walked out the door i was uh 50 years old i was we were living in new york city and i was not prepared for that and mm. I, I like to tell people, be careful what you wish for. Yes. 
it. And that's like, I wake up the next day. I'm like, what do I do now? <laughs> and, and yeah, so self-actualization, I was like starting from ground zero. Um, and how did you go about that? What, what are some of the things that occurred and, and kind of... Yeah, um, you know, I started trying... Um, I started trying a bunch of different things mm -hmm. and um, uh, you know, it was a, it was a struggle. Um, I, I joined a, a group in Manhattan called New York angels. And that was actually a, for me, a borderline uh, comical experience, basically a bunch of, you know, retired guys that are, you know, being asked to leave their, their homes by their wives during the day and uh, you know they'd go make a bunch of little small investments in these crappy little companies uh and that didn't work for me and so i i really struggled trying to find something to do and you know i always enjoyed you know mentoring and i i had given I tried giving back by, you know, writing checks and going on boards of not-for-profits. And, you know, that, that didn't work for me. That I didn't feel, I didn't feel right doing that. I didn't enjoy that. And we had, we were finishing a house out in uh, Big Sky, Montana. And um, my wife suggested, you know, why, why don't you go see if they have a, a, any open teaching positions at Montana State University in, in Bozeman? And I sent him my, uh, the dean, uh, my, my CV, and he really didn't know what to do with me because I wasn't an academic. Right. And I just kept on pestering him. And every time I went out, I'd like, hey, Dean, can I stop by and meet you? And um, and they finally hired me um, on, on, on a part-time basis. Um, I did it for three years. I, I, taught, um, I taught introduction entrepreneurship and then uh, to freshmen and then um, – to seniors, uh, business strategy, and it was a case method approach. And I never had more than 18 kids. And it was, um, to this day, one of the most rewarding experiences of, of my life. Um, my first semester teaching, I had two, two sections, two classes, 18 kids each. And uh, at the end of the first semester, they all lined up, boys and girls, and they all hugged me and thanked me. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, it was um, very gratifying. Yeah, unfortunately, just my schedule and traveling, and want to travel some more with my wife. I, I haven't been able to commit to teaching, but um, it's a noble profession, and it is a rich way to to give back. Um, and now you've suck, sunk your teeth back into some ventures. Do you mind sharing about uh, some of that? <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh boy, sometimes I I question my my judgment. <laughs> um, so yeah, I I um you know the entrepreneur in me. So I I have I've done a lot of um, building on our own account. Uh, and I just think that um, home construction, particularly in the higher end, 
has not evolved in you know 50 or 100 years it's a pretty it's pretty inefficient frustrating process so uh, i've been working with a partner uh in poland for a couple of years now and um we're, we're working on building designing and building we, we actually just started fabricating our first higher-end home um and we designed it all in in um, 3d software and resolved all the conflicts in advance and we're fabricating it in a factory we set up in, in northern poland and it's going to be a, a panel system and we're shipping it to big sky montana so that's been kind of a fun venture and yes. pretty much you know i i tell i always told my students you know if you don't like waking up every morning solving problems um entrepreneurship is not for you or yeah. being part of an entrepreneurial venture yeah. is not not for you and um so that's what i'm doing now with that venture i wake up every morning with my partner in poland and we just solve problems um so that's been challenging and um i've, I've lost some sleep working on that but we're we're, we're uh, and my, my, my team in Poland is just unbelievable, uh, really just amazing people. Um, Can you and share, it, share the name of that company and I'll put that in the podcast notes because it's sure. certainly worth, I, I took a, a deep dive into what the website was at least and they're just beautiful aesthetically. Oh, thank you. Homes. Yeah, Design Built uh, is the company and designbuilt.com. Um, and our design team is in Poland, uh, you know, very Northern European aesthetic. And um, Poland has a, has a deep, long um, tradition of, of quality fabrication. Yes. Um, so, we're, you know, Northern European aesthetic and, you know, we're looking to do really high quality uh, fabrication. So that's been um, a fun endeavor. And then I'm also working with a private equity firm out of Chicago, Short Capital, and they focus on, they really focus on, you know, low end uh, middle market companies with EBITDA of, you know, three to $7 million mm -hmm. and still founder led. And, and, and they, they buy these companies that have not done everything that we've been talking about, Mark. And that's, yeah, right. You, you know, and that's their approach. They, they, you know, and it's, you know, KPIs, metrics, meeting rhythm, goals, defined goals. Um, and so it's been fun working with, with Shure um, on these lower middle market companies and, you know, really transforming these companies into, into winning a culture of, of winning. And, yeah. And, yeah. So just coming up on time, Greg, is there any kind of la lasting words that you'd like to leave with our listeners here around uh, the virtues or anything at all that comes top of mind? You know, the, the real, and I mentioned it before, and I just, I love to come back to it. And um, I, I, I'm, I'm, you can't even begin to get to a greater place unless you genuinely realize it's it's not about you it's everybody else around you and you know i love jim collins and his 
is focus on big, hairy, audacious goal. And I tell people, you know, if you alone through brute force could get your company to your big, hairy, audacious goal, it, it's not big enough. You, you, you need to, to, to set goals that you alone cannot get to. I, I watched one, uh, another Netflix. I guess I'm watching too much Netflix. <laughs> yeah. in, in the wee hours of the morning, uh, there was one, it's called 14 Peaks, and this guy just broke the record of, of um, climbing all the four t- 14 top peaks that are over at 8,000 uh, 8, feet. Um, so 8,000 metres perhaps. I, sorry, I forgot, forgot the metrics because it was early in the morning, but it was an amazing, it, it was like you could never do this. You know, it can't be done. You know, you couldn't organize a team to do this. No one's even gotten close to this kind of timing and he, and, and he achieved it. So it's, um, I think if we don't have those things out in front of us, there's nothing to chew upon, right? Yeah, I agree. Or, or excite us. So, well, thank you so much for tuning in today. Greg is my guest. It's um, it's it's a real privilege to to have this conversation with you. and I And I hope there's more for us to come. Thanks, Mark. Have a great day. Thank you, listeners.